So since we, since we can set this up new, uh, new class, new faces, would a couple, two or three of you like to share what it is that you hope to glean or what you're hoping to discover or something about this class that you're hoping to do? Anybody? you just like me. That's right. Thank you. Okay, that is a, an excellent question. Did you hear his question? Why is what is going to happen going to happen? I like that. That's a great, great question. What else? Anybody else got a goal? Question? Yes, Miss Mary. You know what that means, Mary? You're normal. <laughs> what she said was, I've, I've studied it twice, but I still just don't feel like I've got a grasp or an understanding. But what that means is you are normal because this is, this is different. It's unique. It's, there's, there's only one other book in the Bible that's similar to this book. What is it? Isaiah. Well, Isaiah, yes, it's prophetic, but, but Daniel being apocalyptic in its nature. So, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, not a hard, it's, not, it's a hard thing to understand, but we'll dig through that. One more. Has anybody, someone else got a goal? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, why is there 144,000 and 12,000 from each tribe? And yeah, what, what, one of the biggest questions we're going to answer in this is what place does Israel have literally? And that is a huge question to consider when you begin to study the book of Revelation. So we're going to dig into that. Those are awesome questions. And I hope that you'll, you know, timestamp that and keep that close to you. So, so let me ask this question I want you to kind of think about. What is the hardest ordeal that you as an individual have ever had to face? Hardest thing that you, in your life that you have ever had to deal with. I, I, I've thought of two personally myself to just give you an answer, and I won't elaborate, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys. But uh, this upcoming March marks nine years when I blew disc number six, the disc between my vertebrae six and seven. I blew it out. And it was intense pain. It was a process. I had surgery on April 29th, 2015. And it was, it was hard. For me, it was horrible. It was, it, I didn't like it. I couldn't sleep for two months. It was terrible. Second to that would be uh, coming up in March. It's the 10th anniversary of us losing Laura's mom. And that was a hard, a hard thing. Those were hard things. But in neither of my examples did I tell you a story of being persecuted for my faith. So what about you? What's the hardest thing you've ever had to experience? And did you do so because of your faith? Anybody? Tim? And you're at a place now where would you say that it's kind of resolved or unresolved? Yeah, it's a resolved situation. 
Some of us are in tension right now, though, that we've been in for years and it's not resolved. Maybe you have tension with a family. Any of you got any tension with family members that's just unresolved? I mean, talking like years and decades. I mean, just tracking on and on and on. And just about the time you think it's going to resolve, it just keeps on. It's like a snowball. Some of you are saying and begging for snow. Stop. I don't want, well, I'm sorry. I want snow for you. But I'm, the only white stuff I like is sand. I really could care less if it snows. My wife loves snow, and she is, she's nodding big right now. And uh, right now they're calling for some in about a week or so. So hope, I hope your wish comes true. But for some of us, there are things in our life that are unresolved. There's tensions that, that mount. I want you for a moment to step into a time machine and go back 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago would have been A.D. 23. Jesus has not yet begun his ministry. We believe he was, it was probably around A.D. 30. We believe Jesus somewhere between 33 and 36 A.D. was crucified. So 2,000 years ago, things were just about to get ramped up. But then they did. Here was 12 men, less one, who'd given up their lives to follow Jesus Christ. And they watched him willingly go to a cross and die the most cruel death possible. Did they not? They killed him. They stripped him. They beat him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. Plucked his beard out. Whipped him with the cat of nine tails, nine, nine tails 39 times, most likely exposing his rib cage. His entrails were probably hanging out his back. Died on a cross. And here they are scattered except for John. And where was John? Where was the apostle John during the crucifixion of Jesus? With Jesus' mother. The others were scattered, probably watching from afar or at least from a distance. Hiding for fearing for their life. And if you were here Sunday morning, I read John 16, 1, and he said, these things I say to you so that you will not stumble. Jesus comes back from the dead. And that was probably one of the most joyous things that could have happened, but at the same time, there was an unresolved tension that Jesus had basically told them, if you follow me, you will die. How would you like that to be the gospel invitation on a Sunday morning? To trust Jesus Christ to save your soul and give you new life. And by giving you new life, he's inviting you into a path that will probably kill you. And so those men, in obedience to the Lord, after they watched him ascend into heaven, waited in an upper room, and the Spirit showed up, not to get ahead of our, on our series on Sunday morning, but the Spirit came down and filled them. The new covenant had been initiated, giving them the power to be his witnesses. And the word for witness is martyr. And so now we're somewhere in the 30 AD range as they begin to go out. But as the book of Acts unfolds, we begin to see the pressure mount and the tension build. The apostles in the church begin to experience persecution primarily from the Jews, but then things began to change with the Roman government. Yes, the Roman government was part of the plan that, that was involved to crucify Jesus, but the, but the leaders, the Caesars, began to shift in their thinking. 
and declared themselves gods themselves. Demanding worship, building idols of themselves and asking people to serve them. And then around the late 60s comes Nero, who was nuts. I talk about Looney Tunes a lot, but there is a Looney Tune, an episode of Bugs Bunny with Nero in it, trying to find somebody just to kill for sport. Probably wasn't too far off. But he dies, and after he dies, a new dynasty of Caesars comes into the picture. They were called the Flavian Dynasty. And these guys were just as jacked up. Now you're getting into about A.D. 70. Paul is dead. Paul died most likely under Nero. His head was cut off. And persecution now is not just a Jewish issue, but it's a Roman issue. In fact, by the time you get to 70 AD, let's, let's, let's do some quizzing here. What happens in Jerusalem in 70 AD? The temple is destroyed. The center of Jewish worship is now desecrated, and so the persecution that begins to grow is now a Roman cultural issue. And the bloodlust of these emperors was growing and mounting to this point where in, on, your, on your guide you have this picture, and it is a disgusting picture, and I apologize for it. It's actually pretty tame compared to some of the artist depictions of what, the, of what was happening. But, but what you see here is, is people being, being thrown into the middle of, of an arena with animal skins sewed around their body being attacked by wild dogs. They considered the Christian to be deserving of capital punishment because they were not worshiping the emperor. In fact, what you see here was known, I have to read it because this is, this is in, this is in Latin. It's called the Damnatio ad bestias. Let me translate. It's the damnation by beast. Condemnation by beast. And they didn't just use dogs. They used all kinds of different animals. They used, um, they used bulls. They used, I mean, they used lions, but, but human flesh to a lion wasn't that appealing, which is why they would sometimes lace them with, with animal fur or starve them to the point where they were just wanting to, 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 to eat anything. In fact, I found this one picture where, so, where an artist depicted a, a person being attacked by a leopard and the leopard was going straight to the face. And you're looking at it and you're like, why in the world would you show us these pictures? This, this found its height and, and its initiation beginning to, to rise even more somewhere around 80 A.D., in fact, if, you, if you've ever read the book called Fox's, Martyrs, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a story of, of a lady named Blandina. And it says, Blandina, last of all, a generous mother, having exhorted her children and sent them before her, vic- before her victorious to the king, review, reviewing this whole series of sufferings, hastened to undergo the same herself. Rejoicing and triumphing in her exit, as if she had been invited to a marriage supper, 
not as one going to be exposed to the wild beasts. She's about to die for her faith. He goes on to say, after she endured stripes, in other words, they whipped her to expose blood, the tearing of the beast and what they called the iron chair, she was enclosed in a net and thrown to a wild bull. And having been tossed around for some time by the animal and proving quite superior to her pain, through the influence of hope and the realizing, realization of the view of her object of faith, she at last breathed out her soul. We don't experience that. We don't know that. We can only read it through history, but, but as we read it in history, we see this lens of, of the reality that sets up the context for the book of Revelation. And maybe, maybe we sit, sit here today and we hear this story and we ask the same question that maybe they asked back then. And it's a common question we ask now. In the, if you're reading through the book of Job, if you're reading chronologically, you're in the book of Job right now. And you ask a question similar to King David. Well, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face? How long shall I take counsel from my soul, having sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy be exalted over me. I'm not a prophet. And I don't want to ever pretend to be a prophet. But I think that we can see that there is finally a public turning in America toward public hostility to those of faith. We're not experiencing it. We're a little bit shielded in the South right now. But ladies and gentlemen, it's coming. It's already here. And we, like the readers of this book, need some encouragement. We need to know, Stephen, like, why are the things that's going to happen going to happen? And that's what they're reading. Literally, if you think about the title of this book, and if you want to follow with your notes, I do have, let me, I'm just going to do my best to just put the stuff up there. There are some blanks, but I hope I've given you enough space you can jot some notes down too. The title of this book is literally the, Le- the Revelation, the Apocalypse of John. Which really is a little bit dis- misleading because John didn't title his book. That title was introduced later. It really should be the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Because that's the first words of the first verse. <coughs> Excuse me. Literally the book is what's called Apocalyptic Literature is highly symbolic. Leland Riken, Riken calls this visionary literature as it pictures the settings, the characters, and events that offer, that often differ from what is ordinary reality. So Mary, yeah, there's some things in there we're going to see and you have seen and you've read about and you're just going, what in the world with this, in fact, when we get to the thing about the angel having seven eyes and, and the ten horns and all that, I'm, I'm going to get a picture of that. There's a meme going around right now that said, hey, I just showed my wife what an angel's supposed to look like in Revelation. It scared her. It should, because it's really weird. It just doesn't make sense. But this, by its very title, is like the book of Daniel. And as we unpack this book, we, we have to consider that it is filled with symbolism. But I'm going to give us some instruction on what we're supposed to do when we read fig- figures of speech. 
Because on one side, you can't take everything absolutely literal. For example, like in the Old Testament, when it said that the earth has ears, the earth does not have ears. But at the same time, we can't explain everything away and say it's absolutely symbolic. Unless the text indicates otherwise, if, it is, if it's written in its literal sense and it makes sense in its literal sense, then we see it in its, as literal. And as I said before, this is revelation. It's not revelations. So again, I want you all to say that with me. Say the word revelation. No. Come on, say no. No, no S. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's one image, one vision. In fact... When you think about this title, Stanley Two Saints says that this title is accurate and inaccurate in that it is John who is recording the vision, but this message, unlike an epistle, is coming from Jesus Christ. When you read Paul's letters, when you read Peter's letters, it's them writing to a group of people, but in the book of Revelation, this is a message from God, and John is just the deliverer of the message. So we skip down to the authorship here, and thus the author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. I I believe that. Now, anything that we see theologically, there's always a counterexample for. Some people don't believe that as the church began to grow, and you get into the 80s and the 90s, and they refer to an individual by the name of Elder John, like you read book uh, 2 John and 3 John, you, you begin to hear that title. But here's another quiz point. Which apostle did not die a martyr's death? John. John died of natural causes. If we follow the timeline and we're getting close to the end of the first century, how old do you think John was when he died, do you think? I think John was probably in his 90s. He was an old man. He died an old man. He saw a lot of things, but he also saw all 11 of his friends die that's a it's a sobering moment and so he identifies himself in the in the letter in 1 1 1 4 1 9 and 22 8 in the gospel of john he never even names himself so some people have argued well no revelation had to have been written by someone else because the way the structure and the style of the way it's written in the original language doesn't look like the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, just doesn't look the same. Well, what did I say a minute ago? Who is sending this letter? Jesus. If, if, uh, if Miss Cynthia asked me to come over to her house and to write a letter for her, and I was writing it exactly as she was speaking it to me, would it sound like my stuff? No, it would sound like her. So I can accept that the structure and the style of the book of Revelation is different and it is still John's hand that recorded it. So when you look at this text, it says that the vision was sent by Jesus Christ and communicated by an angel to Jesus' bond servant, John. There's, there's a chain that's going on from God to Jesus to an angel to John and then from John to the seven churches that we're going to have titled in just a few minutes. But here's some observation. This man was very, very well known. I mean, they knew the apostles. They, they were public figures. But by the time you get to, to when John, I believe, wrote this letter, he's very well known all over Asia Minor. Probably most likely in Africa. Maybe even reaching into Italy and into, into Europe. They knew who John was. 
We know that John referred to Jesus as the word, the logos, and he does so even in here. In 1913, he calls him the Logos of God. The imagery that we read about is Jesus being the lamb, the water of life. Where do we read those things? We read them in the, in the Gospel of John. Here, in this book, and in Zechariah 12, and in the Gospel of John, we get this word called pierced. Very rarely used, but we, we know what that means. Well, who was pierced for our transgressions? Jesus was, and so he's picking up on that same language. Here's some cool stats. Of the 916 various words that are used in the book of Revelation, 416 of those words are also used in the Gospel of John. So do you see the connection between the two and why we believe that John wrote this book? In fact, they say that 98 of the 916 are unique to just the book of Revelation. So it's a very unique book written by the Apostle John. And in fact, there's external evidence to confirm this. In fact, you read early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Trepho, Irenaeus, Clement, Hippolytus, Tertullian, and Origen, all of these referred to John writing this gospel, I mean, writing this apocalypse, and in fact, specifically, uh, Irenaeus says, from the island of Patmos. Which means, most likely, that he wrote this in the year 95 A.D. Under the emperor rule of Domitian, who died in 96. And so even those same church fathers would come back and say that after, after Domitian died, they allowed him to come back out of exile from Patmos. Now we think Patmos was probably this terrible island, but honestly, it's, it's, actually, it's actually habitable. It's very rocky, it's very hilly. It's located about 40 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus, which is where he finds his home. So he wasn't really that far from home either. He was exiled there because of what he was preaching about Jesus Christ. And that's where we find him. According to uh, chapter 1, verse number 9, he himself says he's sitting on this island. How many of you have ever dedicated time to get away from people, to get away from places, just to hear the voice of God. If you haven't, let's let John be an example. I'm, I'm going to try to give you as many application points as I can throughout all the things that we're going to say tonight. I'm looking at my time. I'm only 30 minutes in, and you haven't started drooling, so we're good. But what would it look like if you turned off all the noise for the purpose of listening and hearing from, from God. It could be something powerful. Uh, Randy Williams, you know, the, that will be joining us in a, in a month, right now at where he serves at Concord, they're doing what's called 21 Days of Prayer, where they get together every day for three weeks at 6 o'clock in the morning and worship and pray together for an hour. Y'all look like y'all are interested. Hmm. See what next year holds. But the second week of that, they fast food. They do a juice fast. They cut out all the different things. I did it last year. I went from Monday to Friday and fasted food. And instead of eating, I spent that time praying. And, I mean, it was, it was enriching. Setting things aside, sacrificing things so that God could speak. 
It's, it's good. It's really, really good. Well, John is on an island for at least a year by himself. He is interacting with people because he gives this letter to somebody to carry. But God reveals himself to him in a special, special way. So the reason that we date this in 95 is because most likely under the rule of Domitian is where we begin to see the height of not just Christian persecution, but just some very ugly ways they were, pers- they were, they were killing people. Just disgusting. You know, if you give yourself over to your flesh, you can do some pretty nasty things. And we all see here, we just talked about how we're all born in the South, right? You go around this world and you, you see things that are on the news and you hear about what people do to one another and you're just like, how could anybody do that? Well, you give yourself over to your flesh, you can do some pretty, pretty bad things. But I still, and I think I hold to this, there are some scholars who believe that he wrote it in 59 to 60, right there at the end of Nero's rule, uh, because he, he doesn't refer to the destruction of the temple. But just because he doesn't refer to the destruction of the temple doesn't mean it's not gone. So I don't buy that. I don't buy the argument of absence. I, I think I hold to this, and, you know, if you, if you find a different, if you find a different view, it's okay. Now, I've got to apologize, because on the second page, there's a big blank spot, because that was supposed to be a map. <laughs> and I don't know why the printer didn't print it. I don't know if it encoded it when I copied it over from my program. But I wanted to lay this out just to show you down here at the bottom is the island of Patmos right there. And like I said, this is 40 miles. Golly, my hand is shaking. Y'all see that? It's about 40 miles from here to Ephesus. Now, the seven churches that he's going to identify are marked on this map. And I want you to notice how they're laid out. Do y'all see it? It's like a wedge on a map. If he writes this letter and sends it back to his people here in Ephesus, look how easy this is to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and then down here to Laodicea. But he didn't just send it to the seven churches. He sent it to the church. And so you can splinter off here. Here's Colossae and here's uh, Antioch, Pisidian. I mean, they're, they're all over the place here. And that letter was able to get out. But how many letters did he write? He wrote one. And he probably gave instruction to say, hey, look, take it to Ephesus. And as soon as it gets to Ephesus and they read it, then send it on to Smyrna. I'm kind of thinking this might have taken about six months for that letter to get, to get moved between these cities. And that letter was written probably on a scroll, and most of those scrolls were about 15 feet long. But then they started copying it because they recognized something. What do you think they, it is they recognized about this book? It came from God. Here's an eyewitness, the last eyewitness maybe, to the death of Jesus Christ, the last apostle living. And just like E.F. Hutton, if he speaks, I need to listen. And so for us today, I think we have the same thing, that we sit here and we are, we are going to take this book, and as it says in verse number 3 of chapter 1, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is, is near. And so, are y'all good? I'm actually somewhere in here, I thought, you know what, let's take a break. 
but I've got, I got two questions I want to I want to kind of unpack real quick. It says thus we have John writing the apocalypse from the island of Patmos in exile to the seven churches. <clears throat> excuse me, in West Asia Minor around eight ninety five A.D. So that really is the context. That is your historical context to lay the foundation as you start reading this book. But you know what? I want you to stand up for a minute. Because I'm looking at you, and I'm teaching you like this is a seminary class instead of preaching this. And I've still got a little bit of crud. But would y'all sing with me? Would y'all, would y'all really, I mean, let's just sing, I mean, I was in here thinking, what could we sing to kind of halfway break this up to get us a moment to stretch out? But I, I don't know any better, better, better song that would fit here than to sing I Fly Away. So if you don't know the lyrics, just kind of go, you know, just kind of mumble it. But some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Now sing it loud. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Now don't you feel better about yourself? Now y'all sit down. When I was in my um, undergrad, I had this lady who led my, um, I was in like the, uh, it wasn't student teaching yet, it was before student teaching, I can't remember what they called it, and she told me that if you take the age of a student, that's about how long their attention span is, and you need to change things up that much, so I figure the average age of our maturity is about 30 minutes, and so I gave you 30 minutes, and we, y'all are supposed to laugh at that, I don't know, is there anybody in here other than you three that's under 30 years old? Tim says he is. In mind, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the way mine works too. So let me, let me jump over because we need to talk about what the genre of this book is. And you're going, oh my gosh, is this English 101 again? Yes, it is. Because when you read the New Testament, you have narrative literature. Which of the books of the New Testament are narrative literature? Come on, y'all can talk back. Come on, I need y'all talking back. Which books of the New Testament are narrative? They tell story. Matthew? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what, which other one? Acts. Yeah, the first five. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are narrative literature. So when you're reading narrative literature, you have to consider that, hey, I'm reading a narrative literature. Now, what's the other kind of book that we see in the New Testament? We see an epistle, a letter. Now, when I'm reading an epistle letter, that's a lot different. In fact, my natural inclination, you'll learn about me, is to, is to go to epistles. I, I just, I love to break it down. The language is fun. I love finding commands and imperatives and hortatory subjunctives and all the different things that are in there. Laura's laughing at me. But that's, I, I geek out on that stuff. The book of Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature but if you notice from this blank that i put here you have apocalyptic literature which is the bulk of it the symbolic aspects of the book but you also will see in here prophetic like the book of isaiah now sometimes you look at things like ezekiel and you can see some of this kind of symbolism but daniel is the one who gets the gets the award in the old testament for being most like revelation 
But you do see a little epistolary instructions in here. Specifically, you see chapter 2, chapter 3, and then the epilogue of chapter 22 where he's going to say, you need to do this. You need to keep this in mind. That's, that's the, the essence of an epistle. So I want to give you, just, just kind of listen to these for a moment. These are six things that Roy Zook says we need to consider when we are wrestling through figurative language. 144,000. Is that figurative or literal? Angels with ten eyes and beasts with tw- 13 horns and all the different things we're going to see in here. How do I understand them? Well, here's what we start with. Number one, always take a passage in its literal sense unless there's a good reason to do so otherwise. For example, we will see the image of a lamb in the book of Revelation. But who do we know the lamb to be? It's Jesus. So, in other words, we're not taking this as a literal lamb because he's already been identified as Jesus. But, as Morgan asked, there is nothing in the text to make us think that that the 144,000 are not 144,000. There's nothing in there to make us believe that it would be anything symbolic. There may be some implications from it, but I mean, I think John literally saw 144,000 and the angel told him it's 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I think that's what he, he was revealed to see. Number two, the figurative sense is intended if the literal would involve something impossible, like Micah 1, 2, where it said the earth has ears. Because where would the ears of the earth be? Would it be on America and China? Would it be on the North Pole and the South Pole? I mean, where would you put the ears on the earth? I mean, I mean, I mean, you might could flag it on Australia and a little bit on New Zealand and kind of have a Mickey Mouse thing going on. But so, I mean, unless unless it's an, you need to accept it as literal unless it's just an impossibility. But wait a minute, is anything impossible with God? Yeah, we got to approach it with some faith here. Number three, the figurative is intended if the literal mean, meaning is an absurdity. For example, Isaiah fifty five twelve, where it talks about trees clapping their hands. That is a metaphor, right? Do trees clap their hands? They were last night. I don't know where you were when that wind showed up, but mine were bowing down to the ground. (laughs) It was crazy. Number four, take the figurative sense if the literal world, or if the literal would demand an immoral action. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Did Jesus mean literally that you would drink his blood? But our Catholic friends believe that when they bless, bless the cup of Christ, it becomes the literal blood of Jesus. Do you guys believe that's a misinterpretation of Scripture? I do. Because I don't believe no human being on this planet can bless a cup of wine and it turned into blood. Case in point. Number five, note whether a figurative expression is followed by an explanatory note. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. What does that mean? What are the asleep? Who are, who's asleep in this passage? The people that are dead in Christ. Okay? Y'all see what I'm talking about here? We're talking about these figures of speech. And finally, sometimes a figure of speech is marked by a qualifying adjective such as sword of the spirit. I mean, it'd be really cool if you had something sheathed and you pull it out and say, come on, Satan. 
I mean, but that's not what that is. It's not a literal sword I'm holding in my hand. The spirit becomes my weapon. It's not a metal thing. Y'all, y'all see that? So we, we do have to just take those things. So when we're, when we're talking about symbolic versus little, literal, this is the major problem of the book of Revelation. It's determining what is symbolic and what is literal. And now, honestly, that's what's divided people. There are people that are divided in the church over the way that they interpret the book of Revelation. Is that not sad? Because the reason the book of Revelation was written was for two purposes. To encourage people to remain steadfast and to call people to holy living. Did y'all catch that? I'll, I'll, I'll mention it again in a minute. But the two purposes of the book of Revelation is to encourage people to be steadfast in the midst of persecution and to live holy. So all the things that we read, like, you know, like Stephen said, well, why are the things happening that are happening? Those things are happening because we have a holy God who's going to come and judge the evil that's on this earth. He's going to punish the evil being done to his godly ones. There's the why, and the why is embedded in the book. So let me, um, how many of you have ever, please be honest with me, how many of you have ever had somebody sit you down and say, here's how you read Scripture? And gave you a, a, a process. All right, I'm going to give you one. I think it's in your study notes. Let me see if I got it up here. There it is. It should be in your notes because I don't think I put blanks. I just printed them in there. And I got this from Dr. Howard Hendricks. But actually, I had come up with this system on my own after I became a Christian. But I never had anybody sit me down. And you know what? I apologize. Because there's many of you that have been, been in, in church for for many decades, and no one ever sat down and said, hey, I want to show you how this works. When you approach a passage of Scripture, there are four things you do. Number one, you observe. What does it say? Don't say what I think it says or what does this mean to me. Take that out of your vocabulary. That is not, that is, (laughs) that leads to heresy. If you go to a Bible study and and you have a teacher in there and they stand up and say, oh, well, Tim, tell me what this verse means to you. Slap them. And tell him I gave you permission to. You know, we were talking about Arian, who was an, a, an early uh, her- heretic in the church. And you know who smacked him? St. Nicholas. Santa Claus smacked Arian for saying that Jesus was created. Santa Claus is my hero. And I'm serious. If you're in a Bible study and say, what does that verse mean to you? No, you've just skipped all the way down here to the end. Read what it says. Nouns and verbs and prepositions and adjectives. What does it say? Then say, what does it mean? It has a meaning, but it's not what it means to you. It's what it means. Number three, correlation. This is not sometimes included in a lot of things, but you've got to consider how does it fit? Women in the Old Testament wore veils. When, when Isaac was in the field and Rebecca saw him, when she was being brought to be his wife, she immediately put a veil on her face. Wives, how many of you put veils on your faces when your husband asks you to marry you? That's what I thought. So there's a correlation that fits. Uh, uh, who was it? Mark Lowry. Y'all know Mark Lowry that was, that was the Gaither group. One time he did this stand-up and he was making fun. That's not nature itself. Teach you it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Because he was quoting the old, old, you know, the old Testament. But men actually in the, old, in the Bible did wear long hair. In fact, we know that Paul was told to go shave his head. So anyway, then the last step in, in Bible study is how does it work? Like, what do I do with it? If I've, if I've looked at what it says and I find out what it means and how it fits, how does it work? 
If you take those four questions and put it in your journal and you take, like, for example, this Sunday, we're going to be in Ephesians 1.13. If you sit down with Ephesians 1.13, which says, having believed, you are then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You begin to sit down and break that down and mark the verbs and the nouns and you get truth from that. Well, then what do I do with that truth? And that's what I want us to do with the book of Revelation. So, we're running out of time. Here's the challenge. When we study something exegetically, that means we're letting truth come out of the text. Let exegesis, not theology or ideology, serve as a basis for interpretation. So, I've confessed to you, I believe in the premillennial view. I said this in, in our heaven study. I believe Jesus is going to is going to come back, raise the dead. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. He's going to return. He's going to rule literally for a thousand years. It's just my view. If you put a gun to my head and said, recant, or I'm going to shoot you, I'm like, hey, dude, all right, man, I'll be post-mill if you want me to. I'm just saying that. I'm not going to read this going, I'm finding all the evidences of premillennialism. I got to put that on the shelf. I need to put my Baptist hat on the shelf. I need, if, you're, if, you, if you grew up Pentecostal, you need to put your Pentecostal hat on the shelf. If you grew up Lutheran, you need to put your Lutheran hat on the shelf and read it for what it says. And don't let your theology or your ideology serve as the basis. Let the Scripture, because what Scripture does is it feeds, it's the product. Theology is the product of exegesis, proper exegesis. You know what the opposite of exegesis is? It's called eisegesis, which means you're injecting truth into it. That's where we get in trouble. So, y'all got any questions at this point? Dang. Hmm. Where do I go? Wow. Let's just jump over, because I just want to, just jump to the Bible. Turn to to Revelation chapter 1. If you're filling in the blanks, it says the problem is some people avoid the book of Revelation because it's it's many different interpretations have divided Christian. The solution is is to apply the same hermeneutical, which is Bible study, principles that we use to study other books of the Bible. So I just want to throw that at you. So let's 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 do let's do what we just said, all right? We have ten minutes. Y'all trust me? I told you I'll be drooling before we left today. Revelation 1.1. Does anybody want to read it? I'm going to give you guys a chance. Anybody want to read that? Going once, going twice. All right, I'm reading it. The revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his bondservants, plural, the things which must soon take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So again, notice that there is a chain. God to Jesus, to the angel, to John. That's important. There's no other letter in the book of the Bible that has that length of a chain in the distribution of the information. Verse number two says, Who testified to the word of God, the logos of God? Who is the logos of God? It's Jesus. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. This is, this, is, this is absolutely not only highlighting the deity of Christ, but elevating Jesus as co-equal with the Father. Then he says in verse number 3, Blessed is he who reads these words, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written for the time is near. What happens when you look at the sun too long? Yeah, you'll go blind, but uh, Laura and I have this really weird thing going on in our subdivision right now. Because, I mean, we haven't been there a year yet, but when at 5 o'clock when we're normally coming home and we turn on our subdivision road, the sun is dead center in the road. And I'm creeping. You have to because you can't see at all. You, you're, you're watching the edge and you're just hoping that someone's dog is not in the middle of the road because you're going to kill it because you can't see. I mean, the other day we pulled in and there was somebody walking and we're like, oh my gosh, you're going to die. Because the sun right now is perfectly in the center of the road. But when you look at the sun too long and you look away, what do you see? You see spots, don't you? It just kind of sticks with you. And, and, and as we begin to look at, at, at this and we begin to dig in, we're beginning to see this, this new image imprinted of Jesus in our mind. This, this, this apocalypse begins with this chain. It reinforces our confidence in the material that he's delivering over to us. This is John, the beloved disciple, the one Jesus called from the boat, the one who Jesus slept beside at the, fire, at the fireside, the one that ate with Jesus. And now Jesus is a little bit other than this is the immortal Jesus. This is the glorified Jesus. This isn't the Jesus we're going to go get us a Starbucks with now. This is the, the king of the universe standing in his glorified body, which we're going to read a description of how he looks in just a second. But he's standing here. And this is what John is bearing witness to. But what is the result? I want, y'all to, I want you to hear this carefully. What is the result of the promise of reading the words of this revelation. Well, do you remember when Kurt Warner preached a few months ago and he talked about um, the Beatitudes? Well, guess what? Revelation has its own set of Beatitudes. Makarios. Remember, be happy, joy, have joy. Well, the first one we see in here is right there, blessed. So when you think about this, think about Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed to what it says. There is a blessing promised for us to hear and read and do. It's right there, written. And we'll see six others. Seven is a big number. Why is seven important? Y'all know this. You've heard this before. Why is seven important? It's a number of perfection. I turned 49 a few weeks ago. This is my year of Jubilee, by the way. So that means I don't owe anything. I haven't been paying my bills in two weeks. But 49 is seven squared. So it's like perfection squared. So that's me right now. And I'm just kidding. No, but I mean, seven, you're going to see. Remember, you seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven lamps, and seven churches. The number seven is very important in this book because it's symbolic of perfection. But what's the warning? Why is it, what, what's, what's the impeding warning here? The time is near. This is not chronos time, like chronological time. This is kairos time. The season is upon us. So, so I want you to look again at the map. Let me, where did my map go? And I want you to follow along with me. He says in verse number four, John said to the seven, uh, he says to the seven churches who are in Asia, if you skip down <clears throat> to verse number 11, 
He says, I want you to write. And he says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. I'm seeing if they're actually in that order, and they are. And to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Isn't that beautiful? There's the order that he is, he is told to write in right there. And it just kind of makes this little circuit. Why? Because he's here, he gets the letter here, and that thing's going to go out through there. And it's, it's, in, it's important, and it's seven. He talks about in, 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 in here about there being seven spirits at the throne. What are we talking about on Sunday morning right now? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that there's been seven new spirits created or that the Spirit appears in seven different ways. What that means is that the Spirit is perfect. That's what that means. So if we go back to verse number four, he says, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace and peace to you, to him who was and is and who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. We just saw a picture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when you look at I want you to notice something in verse number five. It says, to him who loves us. Nowhere else in the entire New Testament is the word loves used in the present tense except right there. It usually says Jesus loved us. It's always in the aorist or the perfect tense or past tense. This is the only place in the Bible where it says he is loving us. Present tense. Why does that matter? Somebody, somebody be honest with me. Why does it matter to you for me to tell you that Jesus didn't just love you, he loves you right now? Does that bring you any comfort? Does that bring you any hope? Does that bring you any encouragement? I tell you, it does me, especially if I lose my temper or I feel like I've disappointed people or if I feel like I'm just worthless. It should matter that there is a Jesus who loves me, present tense, all the time, no matter what. And maybe somebody in this room needs to hear that, that Jesus loves you, present tense. And so he goes on with this description. I'm going to have to skip a lot and we'll come to the end. Look at verse number seven. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, which most likely were a reference to the Jews. That's who pierced him. And to all the tribes of the earth and they will mourn over him. So it will be, amen. That's, that is just, it's, it's, it's going to happen. Then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, said the Lord God, who, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is a great argument against the deists who say that God kind of spun the earth into motion, stepped away, and left, let it be. The Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and everything in between. Why? Because Jesus is the Word of God. And we see that exaltation in here as he's beginning to lay this out. And then we get to verse number 9. And you can go back and look at some of those questions I've put in there. And again, I will be glad to send you these notes that I'm flipping through up here. I, John, again, he identified himself, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. What is the contextual problem that they are experiencing? Their friends are dying for their faith. And he says, you know what? And I've been exiled. This isn't some holy roller trying to look down from a pulpit and say, you need to be like me. This man has been kicked out of his city 
and exiled to a wasteland because of his faith. Y'all see that? Then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which was most likely by this time Sunday, which was being celebrated as the resurrection day. And I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. And then he says to write. And then in verse number 12, he says, then I turned and I see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands stand for those seven churches. But again, what does seven mean in the book of Revelation? Let's see if we get this right. It means perfection. So it actually represents the church inclusive. And so he's standing there. Does it matter to you that it says that Jesus was walking among the churches? Again, here's these people struggling, hurting, dying, and they're being told, your Lord knows exactly what you're going through, and he's walking right along with you. It matters, guys, it matters. Because we don't want to be alone. And we don't want to suffer, but if we're going to suffer, we want to know that he's right there with us. And then he gives this description. Let me go through this one quickly. Hair white like wool. and His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze and his, it made to glow. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars, which are the seven angels we will find out that are sent out as messengers to the churches. He had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It looks something like this. And I'm telling you, man, some of these, some of these images, you just start looking at them and you're going, man, this is crazy. Then he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. How would, you, how would you react if you saw that? Again, I, just, I think it's funny because there's so many people saying, well, you know what, when I see Jesus, I got a thing or two, I'm going to tell him. You going to walk up to him and tell him a thing or two? I'll stab you in the eye with that sword coming out of his mouth. He won't cut off your ear. He puts ears on, he don't cut them off. Come on, y'all got to admit, that was a bad dad joke, but it was funny. But all John could do was fall at his feet. But he says, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. Here is a man who slept with Jesus at the campfire, ate with Jesus at the campfire, walked with Jesus down the street, went to the shops, observed his miracles, was comforted. In fact, we know by the book of John, he laid upon his breast, on his chest, in comfort, and now he's falling dead at his feet. Can I give you some advice? It's cool for you to get cozy with Jesus. Don't get too cozy like that. He's our friend He knows our problems, but he's also worthy of our honor and praise. Let's not disrespect the Lord with our words, trying to be too comfortable with the friendship part. Let's keep God in his place. Y'all does understand what I'm saying? Like, for example, I I don't call God my daddy. He's my father. Because Jesus said to pray, our father who art in heaven. Daddy's a little bit too personal. Does that mean that God's not personal with me? No, that doesn't mean. I'm just trying to respect and honor him. The day my kid was born and I received the title father, I wear that with pride because I have children. But you know what? There's a lot of men in this world that have fathered children but aren't daddies. You get what I'm saying? He's our father and he deserves respect and he deserves honor. And Christ deserves our praise. So let me finish reading. We're going to be dismissed. And the living one, and he said, I was dead, and behold, I am alive every morning. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a superior being, guys. He's holding everything in his hands. He said, therefore, write these things, 
And the things which are and which things will take place after these things, which is why we believe that what is in the rest of this book has yet to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's your homework. Knowing these things, the might of Christ and his concern and care for churches revealed in Revelation, how does that bring comfort to you today? We're probably like they would see it and we're kind of comfortable with our stuff and we don't really struggle a lot. So when we start talking, when somebody starts telling us, hey, you know, you need to pre- persevere through persecution, it's kind of like, okay, whatever. It's coming, folks. It's coming. I don't want it to come. But you know what? At the same time, I invite the refiner's fire to secure my faith. In what ways does this passage offer you hope and security today knowing in knowing that Christ Jesus Christ by faith? I mean, he holds those those angels in his hands and he walks among the lampstands. He has the keys to death and hell. He is almighty. And if you want to go and read in Daniel 7, what you see here is the ancient of days. God the Father depicted there and now the Son glorified. And those two objects are kind of done like this where you see that the Father and Son aren't like this. They're equal. Because the ancient of days was the one with the, with the wisdom, the gray hair, all those things. But those images are very similar. The two have become almost one in that stature, how do you reconcile the kingdom, his sovereign rule, in the presence of suffering and the call for patient endurance? The age-old question, how is it that we can have a good God and junk be happening all around us? Well, there's coming a day, and it's coming soon. So what I want to challenge you to do this week is this. Read through the book, or read through that chapter. And find one major takeaway, maybe from something we talked about, maybe something that you read. Next week, first thing we'll do is I may say, hey, what, what was your takeaway from last week? And let's see what we can do with it. Father, this was a lot, but it's good. I pray you challenge us to live with endurance and to live holy lives for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, have a good week.